This podcast was made possible thanks to Drama Victoria. Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for drama teachers and students. I'm Nick Waxman and today we are talking with Michael Varr, star of Shakespeare in Love, playing at MTC. Shakespeare in Love is on the Unit 4 Theatre Studies playlist. This is part two of the interview. If you haven't listened to part one, I suggest you go back and have a listen to that. To find out more about Shakespeare in Love and to book your tickets, go to mtc.com.au. Without further ado, let's get to it. How do actors utilise the performance space? It's a, it's a very diverse space uh, and we do, we do uh, use all of it, I think, or nearly all of it. Um, I guess the, the stage itself is flat in itself, but then there's a, a raked um, stage on top of it. Um, it's kind of square, so rake being a, a slant, you know, on an angle. Um, so it's, uh, it's killer for the, uh, the carbs. Um, especially when you're wearing boots. Um, but it's, it allows uh, a clearer vision for an audience to see everything on stage. Um, if you're, you're further upstage, but on a rake, it allows people to see more of you and reveal more of the story. It also raises the stage up a bit more to show a literal stage on stage, if that makes sense, um, because we're telling stories about plays. We're, t- we're showing plays within the play. Um, and we're, we're situating a lot of the, the story within a theatre or theatres. Um, so that's used also as a symbol. Um, and we spend a lot of the time performing parts of the different plays, whether we're rehearsing Romeo and Juliet or performing Two Gentlemen of Verona for the Queen on this stage. We also use it for the dances, like the ball at um, the De Lesseps house the dance space is used on this elevated rake stage um, and many other moments, but it's used to highlight the space within the stage. Um, on top of that or in it, there is also a revolve or a, a donut revolve, I guess. Um, instead of it being like a disc that revolves, it's like a, an O, uh, like the wooden O, which was the name of the globe over in London back in the day, which is a nice little throwback. Um, but there's this revolving O on stage, which helps to transition moments. So there might be a, in the very first scene of Will being on stage with writer's block at his table, and then upstage, a bunch of the actors are preset behind the screen and we use the revolve to transition out. So we don't need to walk on stage or put a set piece of set down. I think there's a, a brassiere um, burning the feet of Henslow. And so he's already set with his feet being burnt. So we can revolve this donut revolve around without needing to wheel on, walk on or put these actors into these positions. We can showcase it to the audience straight away. And it allows for quick changes and and transitions that are much more fluid than what they would ever be without. There's also a trap door, um, which was a, a... a common characteristic of the stages um, in London in the late 1500s and 1600s, being able to put people down there or pull people up from there, hide things, throw things, have it being like the underworld or literally under a stage or a hole, um, little trap door, which is fun. 
Um, there is a tower with a spiral staircase adding different levels as well. So if you have someone on the rake, you can then also have people up in the tower showing us two different spaces. So you can, within one stage space, you can then have two completely different spaces, whether they might be alone and disparate or they can be together but not hearing each other or they can be connected together, like the, the balcony scene in, in um, Romeo and Juliet, for example, um, where we have the top of the spiral staircase, the Juliet, and at the bottom you have Romeo calling to her and saying goodbye to her. That also revolves as well. Um, so people running up and down the staircase, you can set actors on, stay on the staircase in itself and revolve it round to reveal a company of actors or people hiding or listening. Um, it can be so malleable and it's so playful to explore. It was in the rehearsal room and to continue to. Um, but it's a great tool to reveal or to mask, to hide um, and to play on as well. Um, there's also different pieces of the set. Um, there's different screens and different drops that reveal different sets that we had different spaces. So we shift from the stage to the Royal Court. And so a screen will come down on a scrim and can divide the space in half. You can light it from the front so everything behind is masked or you can light it from behind to reveal two different spaces clearly seen at the same time, but also to allow quick changes um, for certain people that might need to get changed from i.e. the queen um, to a nurse in 45 seconds, which is a is being achieved very amazingly by the glorious DJ Rubenstein. Um, what else? There is, I mean, downstage, uh, the thrust closer to the audience. It's much, it's much more fun to play with on a flat floor the closer you get in live performance. Um, there's balconies on either side of the, of the proscenium arch as well, of the stage, um, where a lot of the musicians spend their time, um, either preset or adding music and singing to complement or to contrast what's going on at the stage. Um, and sometimes characters, actors get up there as well to witness things in private um, that no one else will. So it's a, it's a really utilised jungle gym of a space that is con in continuous motion and it's continuously adapting to represent a different space, uh, a different place or a different location. And as actors, we also help that and enhance showing what kind of space it is. I mean, there's a boat at one point where on a boat going down the Thames um, to the De Lesseps Hall and we have two actors pulling this boat on either side with these long ropes just downstage centre and with lighting, we suddenly lose everything in the background into blues and we just have this boat walk, uh, like rowing through this river and then suddenly up on the tower, these musicians appear to sing this beautiful, beautiful music uh, to complement the scene on the boat. Um, and so, and so you, you explore and you find tools and play. It's crazy fun. But uh, we, get, we explore everywhere on that stage. How is language used in the script to convey the playwright or director's intended meaning? Well, I think in, in rehearsal we discovered um, and Simon Phillips, the director, um, was, it was amazing for him to point out at a very early stage that there are three levels of, of language within the text. Um, there is the language between the lower class. And again, this is 
to do with status as well, but also the language that audiences hear, that people hear in life. Um, there was the language between the lower class, um, and but also from a contemporary writer's point of view, taking it outside of the world of the play, uh, Lee Hall um, and Tom Stoppard with the screenplay and whatnot. The, um, the language used between you know, Will Shakespeare and and the Henslows, the the Fennymans, the producers, the theatre makers, the thugs and the writers, the tavern viewers, the the people that drink mead and and um, get raucous and loose. These these earth, the earth of England, the earth of London. Um, and then you have the language that's talked at the court. Um, so Queen Elizabeth, of course. Uh, Lord Tilney, Lord Wessex, uh, Lady Viola de Lesseps. You have this language that is more articulated. It's more, not necessarily clipped in a sense, but it is tighter, for want of a word. Um, and it's not just to do with accent. It's not to do with articulation, although that has a place in it. But there is a, there's a status that comes out through command and succinctness the the clearer you are with the least amount of words possible the more powerful you are and the queen has that beyond anyone else um but then you see it when they mix lord tilney comes into the rehearsals or lord wessex and this clipness and this clearness overrides all this gruffness and boardiness so you have those two levels there of the of language and then on top of that you have the verse of the poetry in this play um, so when Will, Will's sonnet, sonnet 18 is complete and he gives it to Thomas Kent to give to Viola, who are the same person. Um, and, and you hear Viola read it for the first time and it is, it elevates what we feel and what we see and what we hear and imagine beyond the realms of naturalism, beyond the realms of, of the situation but it makes both those worlds even more in focus because of this heightened language, this text that matters, this ability that certain writers throughout history in the world and Shakespeare in the, in the Western canon um, have had this ability to do of, of find the words of love or to describe emotions of humanity with the most profound but clear, delicate, simply complex and complexly simple ways of using language to show story. And so that's the third level, the poetry within that is explored um, within the world. And so using those three tiers to tell the story is, and finding what works when or what lines are actually poetic in a, in a room of low or upper class or what you can jump with, makes the ability even more complicated and more special because of the detail we can apply. How is the actor-audience relationship manipulated, established and maintained? And does that adhere to the theatrical style of a production? Well, in, in this play in itself, though, we don't have any direct address to audience. Um, in, in the Elizabethan theatre, um, and are certainly shown within um, Shakespeare's plays and Marlowe's plays, uh, at the time, um, there was a great sense of um, direct address or engaging with the audience 
pushing them to engage, pushing them to contribute or whether it's react or, you know, for want of a better word now, like laugh, but to interact almost, to feel like they are part of the world or they are being spoken to by these performers on stage. Um, back then, you know, the theatre was different. There wasn't lighting um, or there were very few examples of lighting. A lot of theatre was outdoor during daytime. So you had everything was visible but not just on stage, the audience was also visible. So there was a sense of vulnerability, uh, but also engagement um, that I think audiences don't have generally now. They sit in the dark and feel like they're safe in the darkness while the people on stage, the actors perform. This play in itself doesn't really have that to a degree, but what we do have is, what we are able to do is to harness that, I think, I really feel we do harness that energy and break all bounds of um, feeling ostracized as an audience member to the context of the, to the production. Um, we force people to engage, not aggressively, but I think through the means, uh, through the complex means, similarly to the three tiers of language um, in Elizabethan theater and Jacobean theater, um, and indeed the structure of the globe, you had the groundlings, the lower class people that would pay, you know, one pence or something like that, uh, one Peter to stand in the mud. If it rained, you got rained on. If it was, you know, crazy hot, you were stifled. But that was them on the ground and they were the, the groundlings. Then you had the first level of the ring and the seats undercover. And you were then, if you could afford a seat, you were decent of, of mind, of maybe profession, you had some money. And as you go up to level two and three, you had much more rich people, cushions and blankets. And, and the higher you are, probably the more status you had. And then on stage, you had the royal boxes um, for whichever royalty would decided to come or, or super upper class, if anyone dared. So through the storytelling, you also have these actors, when I've gone to the Globe over in London or seen certain productions in, in, in replicas of the Globe around the world, you have a lot of the bawdy talk, a lot of the, the dirty, simple or filthy stuff told to the groundlings because that's, they'll love that. It's cheeky, it's, it's, it's human, it's, it's the essence, there's no inhibitions. Then you'll have more of the uh, intellectual, uh, comparisons or entendres or, or definitions told to the, the middle and upper class, to the gods and to the ethereal, you know, and we're talking about gods and stories and references and politics. These plays were full of politics. And then you'd have even more politics told to the royal box with the, you know, whether it's Elizabeth or the, the, the certain royalties that were in dealing with the international and national politics. So, Throughout those three tiers, we can also appeal to all walks of audience that come and see our play, but not in the structure of a globe, not with a direct address like a globe um, or, a, or, a, or a, a traditional piece of theatre from, from the UK. But we harness that energy and break inhibitions that audiences may feel so they do feel like they are part of the show themselves. What is the theatrical style of this show? Um, I think it's... It's, a, it's either a mishmash or it's, again, like a, an antithetical contrasting style of um, comedy and farce meets, meets naturalism and tragedy with heightened poetry and 
uh, epic storytelling involved. (laughs) That is the end of part two of the interview. Please do keep listening for part three or go through our bank of episodes to find one that piques your interest. To find out more about Shakespeare in Love, go to mtc.com.au. That is all from us at The Aside. We have a load of episodes in the bank, so feel free to go through those and find one that piques your interest. If you would like to suggest an episode or you have a question, feel free to email us at asidepodcast at outlook.com or you can find us on Facebook, The Aside Podcast. Thank you to Eltham College for letting us record here. Thank you to Aaron Searle for providing the music. Thank you to Drama Victoria for their ongoing support. And of course, thank you for listening.